for sacrifice. These are the generations of, these are the genealogies of, these are the narrative co connectors to the story. Now chapters 12 through 50, you think about that and you're adding up the math in your mind, that's a lot of chapters. There's a lot of content there, right? Chapters 1 to 11 has seemed like a lot so far, Pastor, because we've been working on this since January. But that, that chapters 1 through 11 is a short part of narrative versus chapters 12 to 50, but it has the same amount of connectors or dividers. Uh, so the, the Toledoth, as it were, the, the narrative connection, the Hebrew word for generations of or genealogies of, is going to divide or bring us, bridge those two sections together for a whole picture of the book of Genesis. And that big picture is really sort of in a microcosm showcased here as chapters 10 and 11 resolve and, and launch into chapter 12. And the big message or the big truths that we're going to talk about today really are captured by the title of this message. The title of this message is Eternal Hope Preserved and Presented. I've, I've titled the message this way because we saw last week's message as we ended chapter 9 and we started chapter 10 verse 1. Uh, last week, if you recall, eternal death or eternal deliverance come to the same door. And that was a, a reminder that there is a door, a way of salvation that is through Jesus Christ, who is the door to the sheepfold. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And so we learned last time that there are all encompassing consequences of sin, but God has an unrelenting grace that he uh, overwhelmingly pours on every one of us. And so last time we were together, as we sort of finished out chapter 9 and, and launched in or introduced chapter 10, we learned this truth that you and I must choose God's way of grace because the way of sin destroys, but the way of grace saves. And that was the message last time, the big theological picture of those chapters. So when we looked at those chapters, eternal death or eternal deliverance come to the same door, this message then is an extension of that one and an expansion of that one to uh, then lead us into a, a conflation of the same topic from chapters 12 to 50 under a different set of peoples that come from the singular person, Adam, through Seth, through Noah, through Shem, through Terah, through Abraham. And that picture, and then of course, Isaac, Jacob who becomes Israel and that is on purpose by the by the divine narrator God through the author Moses preserved in the book of Genesis but the message today bridges last chapter sort of the close of the flood narrative the destruction of the earth the blessing of God that's reiterated as Moses walks off the ark uh, and the beautiful rainbow of God's promise of deliverance and grace that eternal hope would thus be preserved and then presented again. And that's what the text highlights. And with that idea, there is a sub-theme then in this text, and that sub-theme is this, the pervasiveness of sin with God's unconditional promise. Last time we saw that sin was, was universally pervasive, but God's grace was also universally saturating right and in the same way 
the pervasiveness of sin is highlighted in this text. We can't get away from it. Sin destroys, but God delivers. That's the big thing of, theme of Genesis. It's the thing we've been talking about over and over and over again. Sin destroys, God delivers. Sin destroys, God delivers. And so thus, sin is pervasive. The authors of the of New Testament, the writers of the New Testament, Paul in particular, would, would put it this way. Um, sin, uh, it, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages or payment of sin is death, eternal separation from God, right? So sin is all pervasive. The, the prophets would put it this way. Jeremiah would say, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The psalmist would say, in sin and iniquity, I was shaped in my mother's womb and I was born that way, right? So we know from the beginning, uh, after Adam's fall and choice to uh, follow Satan instead of God, then we are sinners by choice through Adam and sinners by birth. And thus, there is a pervasiveness of sin. But what we find in this text is God's unconditional promise. That message of hope is an eternal one. And we see that eternal hope is preserved in God's incredible promise. That promise presented in this text is a a sub-theme that we're going to see. So we're going to ask this question this morning, and we'll walk through it with two simple answers to this question. How does the text reveal the pervasiveness of sin and the promise of God's blessing? How does the text today reveal to us the pervasiveness of sin and the promise of God's blessing? And really, Pastor, if you you guys have looked ahead at chapter 10 and chapter 11, you probably are scratching your head thinking, how is he going to preach on a whole bunch of names? (laughs) In fact, there are 70 of them. That number will be kind of important as we move forward. Um, How in the world is this going to happen? And how are we going to do that in this short amount of time? Notice I'm I am wearing a watch today, and there is a ginormous clock, thanks to a member who bought that for us on the back wall. And it is set fast, by the way. Uh, unfortunately, I do know how fast it is, and that, that's actually become a problem. So afterwards, the deacons are probably going to get up on the ladder and move the clock again. Uh, so how does the text reveal the pervasiveness of sin and the promise of God's blessing? As we answer that question, we are going to come to this theological truth. You and I must cling to God's promise of blessing despite the pervasiveness of sin. We will discover that the text highlights the need for all of God's creation, all of God's humanity, that's us today, to cling to the promise of God's blessing despite the pervasiveness of sin. And and I I promise we're going to put feet to that that statement as we walk through this text. It won't just be a big aspirational value. How do we we cling to the promise of God's blessing when we live in a sin-cursed world that's full of hate and hurt, suffering, sorrow, sickness, pain, and even death? Well, the answer lies in the text, and the answer lies in our, our title, Eternal Hope is Preserved and Presented, and that eternal hope comes through God's unconditional promise. We want to see that as we walk through today. So we're going to see that although sin is pervasive, God's promised blessing is unconditional. We'll see that today first in this main point. First, we will see that in God's promise preserved. And that's what we see in Genesis 10. We see God's promise preserved in Genesis 10. Okay? And that's, that's where we're going. That's our first main point. Before we get there, let me, allow me sort of to introduce to you, in fact, grab your Bible and just kind of look with me 
at the sweeping content that we see in verses 1 through 32. And I will read the first and the last verse of chapter 10, okay? So as we look again, remember the Toledoth, that is the, that is the Hebrew word that divides, that gives us division markers of the book of Genesis, 11 of them in total, six in the first 11 chapters, five in the last 12 through 50. And so I told you the first two kind of couple is one, so you could say a perfect 10. I know it's not exactly accurate to say 10 since there are 11, but it's intended narratively to be Toledoth number one, the two combined bookending that. So five and five as it were. And so we're finishing out this Toledoth and here's what it says. Now this is the Toledoth. This is the genealogy, the Toledoth, the generations of. This is the genealogy of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, Japheth. And sons were born to them after the flood. Okay? So remember how this, this uh, happens. Look back in chapter 9, verse 18. Now the sons of Noah went out of the ark. They were Shem, Ham, Japheth. If we went back farther, um, we, would, we would look at um, the promise that God made to those sons in chapter 9, verse 1. So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So there was a, a command and a promise given to those sons. And so we see in chapter 10, verse 1, there is going to be an outlay of how the promise, notice that again, so don't, don't miss this, chapter 9, so God blessed, see the word blessed? God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So there was a promise of blessing. And that promise of blessing is linked again in chapter 10, verse 1. This is the genealogy of the generations of Shem, Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and sons were born of them after the flood. So there's a promise of blessing linked to this lineage, these generations, um, and that is the way this passage unfolds. And look how verse 32 ends. These were the families of the sons of Noah, according to their generations, in their nations, and from these nations were divided, uh, and from these, the nations were divided on the earth after the flood. Okay? So you're seeing big picture links here as we're going to walk through the text in a minute. And then look at verse 1 of chapter 11. Now, now what? This, this chapter 11 occurs sometime within the list of genealogies. We give a little clue to it uh, by a guy named Peleg that shows up in the text. Um, I, I don't have, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this today. I will refer to it later when we get through the text as we walk through Genesis. But the, there are two branches of Shemite. The two branches, the one that follows the promise comes through Peleg. And the other one um, gets a tertiary blessing but doesn't flow through the promise. And there, there are sort of two divisions. You say, where do you find that? That's a great question. It's in chapter 11, verses 10 and following. And that's why I want to tell you that chapter, if I could preach all of chapter 10 and 11 together, what you'd find is this story of division is right in the middle of the promise, blessing. Shemite lineage has two divisions, and they're highlighted here in chapter 10, and then again repeated after the Tower of Babel incident that's discussed in the first nine verses. So they actually go together. Um, but I don't, it's just too much content to cover, okay? 
uh, but they do go together and they're really important to get the big picture idea that eternal hope is preserved and presented. And that eternal hope that's preserved and presented is a hope that God gives through his unconditional promise of blessing. And that's what we see in the big picture story of Genesis. What happens so often when we dig into these is we get really distracted and really uh, interested in the etymology of these names and the, uh, the, the actual geographical location. And I'm going to mention some of that today. I will. Um, but it's really easy to get super excited about when we say you miss the forest from the trees, right? We get excited about the tree that we're inspecting the bark and the growth rings, and we're looking at what kind of bugs are climbing up it and what kind of uh, birds that fly into it because they like those kind of bugs and what kind of uh, sap that tree produces and what kind of uh, vegetation it makes and how that fits in the uh, localized flora and fauna and how the flora and fauna grow around that specific tree and all the biology that's related to the tree. I'm using that as an illustration. Are you tracking with me? It's easy as we study the Bible and in this particular passage to get so distracted by the little minute details that we forget the big picture of the message. Because remember, this was a message that was meant to be read in totality. So if you sit down to read Genesis chapters 1 through 50 in one sitting, it's going to take you a bit of time. And there's a flow of thought here that you can miss if you focus too much on the details. Now, the details matter and they're important, and I'm going to get into some of them today. But I don't want my, my goal today is not to get bogged down in the details, but to see the big picture. So look how chapter 10 and chapter 11 are linked. Look at chapter 11, verse 1. Now, the whole earth had one language and one speech. Notice how chapter 10 ended. And from these, the nations were divided on the earth after the flood. We're going to find out how the one language, one speech interfered with God's preservation and promise of blessing. And thus God intervened to continue to preserve his promise and blessing so there wouldn't be another premature time of destruction on the earth. And so we find in verse 2, and it came to pass as they journeyed from the east, these are the peoples of, of God, uh, all the nations, the ethnos, as they journeyed from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. Then they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and let them bake them thoroughly. They had bricks for stone. They had asphalt for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we scatter, be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. There's a lot of uh, wordplay here. Um, the conversation mankind is having with himself is meant to be a picture of the conversation that the divine trinity has within itself in chapter 1, verse 26. Let us make man in our image and in our likeness, um, and we find God who created man in his image. Man is attempting to be like God and have a unity uh, and a oneness that will usurp God. And yet here in the text, God has to come down to man because man can never reach to God on its own effort. And that's, that's part of the story and the, the way it's played out here in the narrative. As it goes on to say, whose tops in the heavens, let us make a name for ourselves, verse five. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men have built. And the Lord said, indeed, the people are one. They all have one language, and this is what they begin to do now. Nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, 
let us go down. So here's a word play again. Man had a dialogue with himself. God is again in the triune God having another dialogue with self. This is the first time it occurs since Genesis 1.26, where God, the Trinity, confers in the text, let us go down and there confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they ceased building the city. There its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. Again, if we were to link these two passages, there's a word play here, uh, Babel, confusion, and there's another word play I'll bring up later. But, but the text is meant to link and connect these things for us so we understand what's going on. Now, verse 10 and following, notice again, these are the generations of, that's our word Toledoth. This is the last mention of it till the end, uh, until chapter 12 begins a new one. So this is the connector that binds it all together. And it's the close of the first part of Genesis. This is the genealogy of Shem. So we find chapter 10, this is genealogies of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, Japheth. Chapter 11, verse 10, this is the genealogy of Shem. Now, when is Shem highlighted? He's highlighted after the Tower of Babel incident. To, and it's meant to, for the reader, to showcase how God is preserving a promise and presenting a blessing. And it's, it's further narrowing down. It, it was really narrow in the beginning. Adam, out of Adam, whom God breathed the breath of life in, comes Eve. Adam aims her, uh, excuse me, names her life. That's what Eve means. Eve names her firstborn Ish, uh, or says, I've received an Ish, a man. And uh, she connects that to the promised seed that God had promised would crush the serpent's head. And so we see the connection that's going on here that was narrowed through one person. And God is showing the funneling of mankind and his blessing and promise is showing up in the context of the text for a reason. And we don't want to miss it as we look at the text. So now, before I dive deeper into chapter 10 and God's preserved promise, I want us to think about some of the names that we hear. All right. Uh, one commentator uh, put it this way. I'll, I'll tell one of his little jokes here in a second. Uh, the, name, the, the names of Genesis 10 kind of provide... Uh, an exotic verbal map of the known world at the dawn of history. That's really kind of what it is. Three times, one for Japheth, then for Ham, and then for Shem, the author states that the table, this description of the names that are seen in chapter 10, um, was composed according to their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. That shows up three times. Remember, the number of three is the triune number. It's a number of perfection. So the author is telling us something. What we find in these genealogies is a is a, a threefold mention of clans, languages, lands, nations. Notice clans, ethnicities, languages. Well, those were divided at Babel, but oftentimes now are connected with ethnicities, um, languages, um, and and their lands, their languages and nations. Languages are geographic, nations are political. So what we have is this creates a, a, a baffling mishmash of ethnic, linguistic, geographical, and political designations. And the descendants of Canaan listed in verse 17 kind of sound like an etymologist list of something for pest controllers, right? Hivites, Archites, Sinites, Termites. No, I'm kidding. Termites aren't in there. 
yeah. So as you look through it, it's it's kind of like ah, these names are kind of strange. Um, but actually, this table of nations has a carefully constructed symmetry. For example, when we add up the group of nations from that came from Noah's son, I already mentioned this. We discover that they total seventy. Another example of the multiples of sevens and tens and seventies that we've seen so often in Genesis, and I've I've talked about this in past sermons. Here it suggests uh, totality. In other words, the 70 names listed is meant to showcase the totality of humanity, that God is, is giving a promise and a blessing to all of humanity, even after Noah, even after the flood. God preserved Noah and his family, and in Noah and his family who received the promise and the blessing, God again will bless all of the nations. There is a universal blessing that is meant that is going to be narrowed through a singular promise. Universal blessing, singular promise. And that is that God would crush the serpent's head, but the heel of the one who would crush the head would be bruised. We know that to be the promised one to come, whose name is Jesus. Now, what is clear to everyone is that despite the complexity of this table of nations, it is structured on the familial symmetry of Noah's three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The Japhethites made up the geographical horizon of Moses' world. Who's the author? Moses. When is this book written? Between 1446 and 1406, somewhere in there, B.C. That is before Christ, not before the Common Era. It's before Christ. Um, 1446 to 1406 is when Moses writes this. This history occurs far before that, right? This is the history of man before Moses, substantially before Moses. Moses comes some 400 plus years after Abraham, okay? So Moses is writing this history to the Israelites for the Israelites to see their select purpose in God's promised blessing for his eternal plan that he has preserved. And this is the message of Moses to the ethnos, the ethnic nation of Israel, and how all the nations are going to be blessed. So this geographical horizon of Moses' world, this is the outer fringes of the known world. Japheth's seven sons are listed here, uh, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshach, and Tyrus. They live mostly to the north and the east of Canaan, and they spoke Indo-European languages. We find Gomer dwelt north of the Caspian Sea. We find Tubal and Meshach settled around the southern shores of the Black Sea. Uh, Tyrus lived west of the Black Sea in Thrace. Madai occupied the area south of the Caspian in what has uh, become known as Media. And Javan populated Ionia, which is the southern part of Greece. The sons of Javan spread around the northern Mediterranean as far west of, as Tarshish or southern Spain. Okay, so Japheth, the Japhethites co cover from the Black Sea all the way down to Spain and the Mediterranean. These are the cousins of, as it were, uh, the Shemites. All right. Ham's four sons, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan, settled primarily in northeast Africa, Egypt, and the eastern Mediterranean, the southern Arabia area. Cush populated the territory of the Upper Nile, south of Egypt. Egypt here really means Egypts because there's Upper and Lower Egypt, if you understand that in history. And what you find here is that no one is sure where Put was put. <laughs> oh, thank you. You're welcome. Uh, nobody laughed at that. Nobody is sure where Put was put. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Nick. Appreciate that. Uh, as we find 
uh, Canaan settled in what was later called Palestine after the Philistines. Okay, um, the descendants of Canaan noted in verses 15 and 19 read like a most wanted list of Israel's inveterate enemies. And this is really how Moses is reading them because the, the children of Israel are, are about to go into Canaan. They're about to displace these enemies of God's people and that's how they're listed. Now, in verse 22 and following, the five sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Arphaxad, Lud, and Aram, or Aram, are the Semitic peoples. Elam's descendants live between the Medes to the north and the Persian Gulf to the south. Asher's descendants were the Assyrians in northern Mesopotamia. Arphaxad was the father of Chaldeans in southern Mesopotamia. Lud's descendants have the Lydians of Asia Minor, and the Arameans dwelled in today's Syria. Of greatest significance among Shem's descendants was Eber. We find that in verses 24 and 25. The name Eber is actually related to the word Hebrew, so that Eber is understood to, the, to, the, to be the ancestor of the Hebrew people. Ultimately, we, Abram, the Hebrew, shared descent from Eber through Peleg, as the genealogy from Shem to Abram will show. And we'll see that. That's what I told you in verse chapter 11, verses 16 to 26. We find the, the Peleg line of Shem, uh, or Peleg. I know, I'm sorry, I said Peleg, so some of you are laughing at that. It is what it is, right? Uh, but that's that's his name. They shared descent from Eber, and thus Abram, uh, it's it's through Abram that Noah's blessing of Shem would be ultimately realized. This genetic connection uh, is only a narrowing connection to a larger eternal promise that God will bless all of the peoples of the earth through his singular mediator the one who had crushed sin forever and take out death for all eternity. The promised blessing of God is preserved by God for God's people. So what we have in the table of the nations is a response to God's charge to Noah after the flood. As I already read it in chapter nine, verse one, be fruitful and multiply and fill up the earth. So thus the table of nations concludes expansively. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies and their nations. And from these nations, they spread abroad the earth after the flood. That's what verse 32 told us in chapter 10. It's from these genealogical horizons that the world's population spread from the continents over the continents of the world to Asia, India, islands of the sea, continents beyond the setting sun. Now, remember, this is not a comprehensive list, but it is meant by the number 70 that are presented to showcase the totality of humanity. I don't want to get into the weeds, the details here, or argue the science of, for example, the flood and what happened to the earth after the flood. But we know that the flood was a massive cataclysm that spanned the entirety of the globe. The volcanic activity alone was enough, no, light, no doubt, to shift the earth on its axis and even present or create a wobble in the earth. Um, even science has shown, shown or thought of um, uh, what I, the, the, the great creation of uh, asteroid belts and comets, uh, watery bodies and frozen heavens that surround our solar system in a ring uh, could have even perhaps happened because of the cataclysm of the flood as, as the earth was uh, erupting and throwing magma into the heavens. And there was a year of, 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 of wobble on the earth and craziness was going. And now the poles are covered in ice and then the ice as it melts gets shifted and and it's surrounding the earth and the globe and, and the, 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 what once was a massive earth body that had very small seas is now a 
massive ocean body with very small amounts of land. And the people groups begin to travel all over this land. And I believe that the land would have shifted even during that post-Ice Age era, multiple ice ages that we saw post-flood. I don't want to get into those scientific weeds, but the, the point that is being made here is not to say that, okay, where did the people groups of, say, the Mayans come from, or the those in Indonesia and the South Pacific Islands and, the, and, and Australia, where did all of those people groups come from? Where did the animals there come from? That's not the point. They, they came from Shem, Ham, and Japheth. That's really the point. The point really is this. God is, is showcasing his eternal promise that he is preserving, and that promise is for all humanity. Through Noah, who is the second Adam, and then specifically through Noah's son Shem, who would then bring in the last Adam, who is Jesus. Okay, that's the point that's being made. So the transcendent truth of the table of nations is that it gives an unparalleled ecumenical vision of humanity um, and a human reality. The table declares the interrelatedness of all people. We all have the same ancestry. We all are the same, no matter what color of skin, how much melanin we have, no matter what hair color, eye color, no matter where we are on this planet, there's one race. It's called the human race. And we're all one blood, one ethnos, one race, one people, and God cares about all of us. And that promise is for all mankind. And we, as God's people, get to carry that promise to all mankind. And we shouldn't be looking at mankind through any other lens, except that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So that we, the sent ones, should preach to every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every people group, in every language, so that there's a representative of all of God's people of all time throughout history that have come singularly through God's one means of eternal preservation and hope, Jesus Christ. So the table that declares that all people derive their existence from the life-giving power of God are, are responsible to him. The Apostle Paul actually used this truth in his famous sermon uh, on the Areopagus in Athens in Acts chapter 17, when he said, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. This was Paul's message to the Athenians, to the unknown God. You have an, you have a, uh, an idol that you're worshiping. You have an altar to the unknown God. It's that unknown God that I want to declare for, to you. And he uses this promise, the totality of the nations. Notice the number 70. It's meant to, to be a complete number of the nations. They all get the same promise that God loves all of them. And he has sent someone to preserve and save and bless and, and, and keep them. So the divinely ordered juxtaposition of nations was to set than to enhance their turning to God. All people are united to one another, both by their ancestry and by their responsibility to their creator, God. But at the same time, all the world's peoples are divided by geography, language, ethnicity, and culture, and most of all, their fallenness and sin, which separates them both from God and each other. So what is the answer for, for a people so united and yet profoundly divided? 
The answer is embedded deep in the Genesis where Adam and Eve suffered division from God and each other through their sin, and God responded to Satan with an oracle, a promise that the one of her offspring would unto, undo his work by crushing his head, Genesis 3.15. That was a divine prophecy of the cross, describing how Satan will strike the heel of Christ, the suffering of the cross, and how Christ will crush Satan's head through, Christ, through Christ's death and glorious resurrection. See, the only hope for Adam and Eve, who were so separated from God and each other and from the whole world, which would be likewise divided, is through the offspring of Adam and Eve and ultimately through Jesus Christ. How God preserves this unbroken line to Christ through the primeval and patriarchal history is one of the greatest themes of Genesis, as evidenced in the series of dramas where the covenant line was almost wiped out and then saved by events both ridiculous and sublime. We will examine the first one, God's promise preserved here, and that preservation carries through chapter 11, uh, 11, and then there's a patriarchal preservation that we're going to see in chapters 12 through 50. So we're going to see this uh, this secondary fact here I'm going to show you in a moment. So let's talk about this God's promise preserved. Uh, this is the thrust of the message, and I'm almost done. Adam had listened closely in, uh, in chapters 3 and 4 to God's speech to his spouse. He understood that one of their offspring would crush the head of the snake. So the man called his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. Of course, I've already told you Eve means life. He was so sure that she would bear offspring that he called his wife life. Hope welled in this couple. And when Eve gave birth to her son, Cain, she says, I've begotten a man with the help of the Lord. That's the first time the covenant name Yahweh, the great I am, is mentioned in the Bible. Her words were an implicit declaration of faith. I have placed my faith in Yahweh, the Lord. He's given me a seed. That seed will crush sin forever, and all this suffering that we've caused will be removed and eradicated. This was Adam and Eve's hope that God would preserve and bless them through the, the seed that would crush the head. Her words, an implicit declaration of faith. Adam had believed the promise of Genesis 3.15 and so named her life. And now she prays God with a newly charged faith for her man, just like Adam. Later, the advent of her second son, Abel, again buoyed their hope. But all was not well, as we know. A dark shadow moved over the offspring. Ungodly Cain refused to bring an offering that would please God. Whereas we're told in Hebrews, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. Seething unbowed, Cain rejects God's remedy, uh, a remediation, and murders his brother. As life faded from Abel's eyes, the promise went dark. With Abel's death, there was no error, no seed would challenge, much less strike the head of the serpent. Predictably, Cainite civilization went the way of Cain, Jude 11, as epitomized in the brutal song of Lamech, which we talked about a couple weeks ago. Darkness had gone to midnight. Exponential vengeance was customary. But in the violent, seedless night, there flashed light. Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son called Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. Chapter 4, verse 25. Eve's faith also shined bright because another offspring is literally another seed, which references the promises 3.15. So Eve is saying, God's given me another seed. See, God promised is always preserved by God himself. God preserves his promise, which rem reminds us 
oops, gotta go this way, reminds us that you and I must cling to God's promise of blessing despite the pervasiveness of sin. How sweet it must have been for the mother of all living as she held the promise in her arms and more the grace of God was not in vain in the line of Seth because to Seth a son was born and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. Chapter four, verse 26, Seth's children worshiped more exactly. They proclaimed the name of the Lord. Only uh, one day a child would come from Seth's descendants who would strike the snake. God was preserving the covenant line. God was preserving the promised blessing. God's promise was preserved. Chapters five through nine discuss the flood. Both the Canaanite and Sethite lines were multiplied. The apex of the long-lived Sethite patriarch was Enoch, who walked with God and was not, for God took him, chapter five, verse 24. Nevertheless, despite the elevating example of Enoch, Canaanite civilization increased in dominance over the Sethites. Through the agency of fallen angels, men gave themselves over to demonization so that marriages and children were conduits of sensuality and violence. The heroes of old were the violent Nephilim. Sethite civilization became indistinguishable from Canaanite culture so that the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and every thought and intention of his heart was only evil continually and God was sorry that he made man. This is the beginning of the flood narrative, right? With this, the Lord determined to put an end to all people save one. But Noah found grace, right? But it was hardly safe. Noah's drunken display demonstrated uh, in chapter 9, verse 20 to 23, that danger was confirmed then by Noah's son, Ham, his leering delight in his father's folly, desecrating his filial relationship and assaulting the good order of creation. If Shem and Japheth had followed suit, the covenant promise would have been nullified again. But of course they did not because they took their father's garment from Ham as we preached last week. They walked backwards uh, into the tent and they covered their father's nakedness and then father's shame. This was an utter, this was an unwitting reactment of God's earlier covering of the sin and the nakedness of Adam and Eve in chapter three, verse 21. As such, it portrayed two groups of mankind. Those like Adam and Eve, who by God's grace have their sins covered. And those like him who make no attempt to cover their nakedness, even exposing it. Divine judgment followed as Noah cursed Canaan and the youngest son of Ham, who would become the father of the Canaanites, a people infamous for their violence and sensuality, perennial enemies of God's people. So Noah then countered with a blessing. Blessed be Yahweh, the Lord, the God of Shem. By blessing the covenant name of God, we see that Shem, the father of Semitic people in Israel, was already in covenant relationship with God. It was through Shem that the line of Adam's son, Seth, would continue on to Abram, the father of Isaac, the father of Jacob. Among the Shem's offspring were came Eber, from which the Hebrew was derived, as we mentioned, the Hebrew word Hebrew. And it is also through Shem that the Gentile Japhethite peoples would enjoy spiritual blessing. We see in chapter 9, verse 27, in the tents of Shem. This is a reference to the blessing that ultimately came through Christ. Galatians 3, 29 says this, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. The, the primeval preservation of God's promise to Eve is astounding, is it not? That God, in the midst of a, a pervasiveness of sin, sin that is total, destructive, complete, and entire, sin that fills the entire earth, God would still preserve his promise to rescue and save the souls of men and women. Righteous Noah and his three sons and their spouses were all survivors. And then the promise was narrowed to Shem, from whom would come Abram the Hebrew. The promise would narrow down to one man, 
father Abraham, but it would be for the benefit of all 70 of the table of nations. That leads me to this truth, God's plan presented. Uh, it says verse, it should say chapter 11. So chapter 11 is God's plan presented. Now we have the interlude of Babel. Babel interrupts this. There's again a mention, as I already mentioned, of sin and the nations that are that are gathered together against God to make themselves like God. So Abram's bloodline went back through Shem to Noah, the one remaining righteous Sethite, through Seth to Adam and Eve and the promise, and thus God's promise to Eve came through him to the table of nations. All of the families of the earth will be blessed. God's covenant to Abram reads this in Genesis 12, 2 and 3. And I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who honors you, I will curse or dishonors you, I'll curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. See, the only problem with Abram was, was that Abram was childless. So I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. Genesis chapter 12, right? This promise narrowed down. God's plan is presented, but God's plan requires faith. Abram, who leaves Ur of the Chaldees with his wife, Sarai, they have to trust God by faith, that God is going to preserve and distinctly uh, bring in this promise. Abram says in chapter 15, verses 2 to 6, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring. A member of my house will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir, but your own very own son will be your heir. And he brought him outside the, and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to do it. Then he says to him, so shall your offspring be. And he, Abram, believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Genesis 15. You see, that night, God dramatically confirmed when his fiery presence passed uh, figure eight style around the halves of the sacrifice in uh, Genesis 15, 9 to 18. We find Isaac in chapters 15 to 21, years passed and still no child. So Sarai and Abram took it upon themselves for the Sarai's maidservant, Hagar. Abram was 86 year old when Ishmael was born, but Ishmael was not to be the answer. In Abram's 99th year, God ordered the circumcision of Abram and his clan as a sign of a covenant promise. He also ordering him to re rename Sarai to Sarah, promising that she would have a son. Abraham laughs, chapter 17, verse 17, but God persisted, instructing him to name yet the unconceived child Isaac. When the circumstances were complete, Sarah herself overheard God's messengers, again affirmed that she would have a son with her, within the year. So Sarah laughs to herself, saying, after I'm worn out, after I'm old, my Lord is old, shall I have I pleasure? Chapter 18, verse 12. So although Abraham laughs incredulously and Sarah laughs incredulously, they laughed together in great joy when baby Isaac was born. In fact, his name means laughter. Sarah said, God has made man, has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. Chapter 21, verse 6. Amazing. God had taken an old couple who were as good as dead, Romans 4, 19, in respect to childbearing, we gave them a son whose descendants would be as numerous as the stars, among whom would spring the bright morning star. Listen, friends, I know this is a hard message. This is a lot of information, but this content is sweeping and it's comprehensive and it's meant to keep the big picture the big picture and keep the main thing the main thing. God eternally preserves his blessing and his hope through his seed and his promise. And you and I must cling to God's promise of blessing 
despite the pervasiveness of sin. I'm going to summarize here in a second. We find in chapters 25 to 33, Jacob introduced and Isaac, the sole heir of the promise, grew to manhood and married Rebecca. She was the first, she was at first barren. But in answer to Isaac's prayer, Rebecca convinced twins who prophetically jostled in her womb. Esau was born first, Jacob grasping the heel. Neither of the sons were honorable. Esau despised his birthright. Jacob schemes to steal it, first by manipulating Esau to sell it, then by fooling his father Isaac into blessing him when he thought he was blessing Esau. Jacob did, in fact, become the legitimate heir through the dishonest dealings and had to flee Esau's homicidal intentions. But it was the land of, uh, it was in the land of Padanaram that Jacob met his match in double dealing, that is Laban, for whom he worked for 14 years in order to marry his beloved Rachel. Then Jacob flee, finally fled Laban it was, and was chastened much, uh, a much sobered man who'd have to face Esau at the end of the flight home, and he was appointed first to wrestle with God in the night. God taught him uh, this newly crippled Jacob uh, by renaming him Israel. God gave Israel mercy from Esau. Finally, back in the land, he built an altar to God. This man, Jacob, now Israel, had been preserved and disciplined and sanctified by God so that he might become the father of the tribes of Israel. Judah and Tamar shows up in chapter 38. The Bible places Jacob's son Judah finally in the line of Christ, the end of Jacob's line, who would prophesy concerning Judah. Chapter 49, verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. But Judah was an unlikely candidate if ever there was one. For starters, Judah married a Canaanite. By her, he had three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Judah found a wife for his son Ur named Tamar, but the marriage was short-lived due to Ur's sin. Judah then commanded his second oldest Onan to fulfill the husband's obligations. He disobeyed. God put him to death, leaving only one son, Shelah, who was yet a boy. When Shelah uh, matured, Tamar was not given as a wife, and the biological possibilities for a covenant line to continue through Judah, Judah were zero. Then Tamar, motivated only by concern for her status, disguised herself as a Canaanite prostitute and sat by the roadside where, where her widowed father-in-law Judah propositioned her. Tamar conceived, escaped death by revealing Judah's culpability and gave birth to twins. Perez, and, uh, Perez son of Judah, is listed with his father in the bloodline of Christ. So we can see that God overruled the compound miseries of human sin to work his plan. I don't know if you heard all of that long list of things that I just said. But the rest of the story of Genesis is full of sloppy, messy, sinful decisions by sinful humans just like us. These heroes of the faith are broken sinners just like you and I. And there's only one theme that showcases deliverance, and that is the God of deliverance. We see the preservation of this line through Joseph. Um, I, I don't I don't have time to continue with my walk through Genesis, but what we find here on God preserving Joseph, he does so so that, get it, do you know how many sons of Jacob, how many descendants of Jacob move to Israel after Joseph becomes the second in command? And during a great time of famine, he rescues the entire known world. You know how many descendants of Jacob enter into Egypt? 70. That is not by accident that that number shows up. How many, how many descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth or of Noah are showcased in chapter 10? 
70 of the ethnos. So why are there 70 descendants of Jacob? Because God is showcasing that through all of the nations, he would providentially preserve one group, not because they were extra special, not because they did anything worthy of that dependence. In fact, we find that Israel and their story, their family story is kind of repulsive. If you're not repulsed by chapter 38, the story of Judah and Tamar, I don't know what will repulse you. But the text is clear. God's promise is not dependent on us. It's dependent on him. And God presents his plan of deliverance that makes no sense to humans. We can't earn our favor with God. But God favors us. Just like God came down and saw the works of men at battle. God came down once for all through the Son, Jesus Christ, his one and only begotten. So that whosoever will may come to God through him. After Abraham, at the close of Genesis, his seed numbered 70, exactly parallel to the number of nations. Moses is taking care to let us know that God has a special role for the seed of Abraham, which is to bring this blessing to the whole earth. Jesus himself was aware of this. By the way, do you know how many disciples Jesus sent out in Luke? 70. This is not an accident. Jesus was aware of God and the irony of God's writings here from Moses delivered from God to his people, 70 representing the totality of human uh, humanity, 70 preserved for God's people, that 70 are supposed to bless the nations, the 70 nations of the earth. So Jesus sends 70 disciples out in his earthly ministry. Why? So they could be uh, preachers of righteousness to hold the totality of humankind. Friends, the gospel is always meant for everybody. There's no exception. Friends, we must not limit what God does not limit. Jesus Christ's atoning work is available to all who would believe and is sufficient for all who will call on him. There is no exception. Jesus is the second Adam, and he himself said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all peoples to myself. Has Jesus Christ been lifted up? Yes, the author of Hebrews says he's been lifted up once for all. When Jesus was on the cross, what did he say? It is finished. It's been paid in full. The totality of God's plan and his plan has been preserved and presented and promised through God. God presents the plan. The plan is that he will send a deliverer through a lineage, and that lineage will thus bless all of the earth. The answer for the world, which is so united, in its humanity and responsibility to God is so divided from God and one another by sin. The answer comes through the ultimate seed of Abraham, Christ the Messiah. It was this Jesus who said, Matthew 28, 18 to 20, all authority is given to me in heaven and earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them all things, to observe all things, whatsoever I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the ends of the ages. Oh, friends, the conclusion, well, mine's off air. Switch, switch the slides for me. This is the conclusion. I've said it once. We'll say it again. Today, we saw that you and I must cling to God's promise of blessing despite the pervasiveness of sin. 
That's really it. That is the summation of chapters 10 and 11, this little discussion of Babel, and we can get into all the details and the weeds. And my point of this real big sweeping analysis today was to remind you of this simple truth. God in his eternal riches and glory, in his wonderful pervasive promise, has provided a, an eternal hope that he has preserved and he has presented to you today. All of us are descendants from one man and one woman, which links us inextricably to one another. There is no room in the house of God for disunity, hate, and division. We should not be dividing ourselves over ethnic uh, ethnicities and language barriers or color of skin or facial features because we are one people under one God with one faith and one Lord, with one baptism through one Savior, Jesus Christ. This is God's promise preserved. The church should be a glorious picture of what eternity will look like. Should be a glorious picture of all the nations coming together to worship Jesus, who has all authority and is always with us. Friends, if you're here today and you've not yet receive that eternal life that comes exclusively and narrowly through Jesus and his promise, God's promise, God is calling you today. He wants you to be a part of his eternal blessing, his eternal heritage, his seed that came through Adam, through Seth, through Noah, through Shem, through Abram, through Judah, through David, through Jesus, and is available to you now. This is the message of hope. God has eternally preserved hope through his son, Jesus Christ. And that hope is presented to all of us. The Bible says, for death has passed upon all men, for all has sinned. Sin, when it is finished, brings forth death, separation from God. For the wages or payment of sin is death. That is eternal separation from God. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The eternal hope and promise of God through Jesus is available to all of you and, and me today. We can be eternally preserved through Christ. Friends, the, the shoe leather should be worn out on this one. What is the application to those of us who are followers of Jesus? You and I have the incredible blessing of being God's divine and saved, eternally preserved children. And we have a message of hope and love. It is a narrow message. It is a, an exclusive message. It is a limiting message. All who would come to God must come exclusively, narrowly, limitedly through his son, Jesus. There is no other way, no other truth, no other life. Jesus is the only way. But you know what? Jesus is the only way. And Jesus is broad enough to receive all who will come to him. And may God help us to bring that message of hope. Thank you for listening so attentively to this rather sweeping discussion of a genealogical survey in Genesis 10 and 11. May we remember clearly today that you and I must cling to God's promise of blessing despite the pervasiveness of sin. How are you being challenged today? How is the enemy speaking lies into your heart and life about the people around you, about your status or place on this planet? 
Is there something that has slipped in that has become more important to you than pursuing the souls of men and women? More important to you than pursuing your connection and your relationship with the eternal God through his son, Jesus. Oh, friends, don't be distracted. Don't, don't think that the oneness of humanity uh, should lead you to a, a political goal or a governmental goal because there is only one politician on the planet that will be able to unite humanity. And even at the end of his thousand year reign, humanity will still rebel against him. And his name is Jesus. No, our problem is not external. We don't need to eradicate poverty or sickness uh, or uh, educate people better, although those things will happen. What we really need is a regenerated heart, which only God can give through Jesus. That's the message of hope. Let's make our lives connected, tethered to God's eternal purpose, because eternal hope is preserved and presented by God. Even though sin is pervasive, God's promise is unconditional. If you come to God through him, you will be saved. Let's pray.